Yeah, it's green. It's been green. Yeah, cool. All right, cool. I don't know what, yeah. All right, here we go. It's going to be one of those days, guys. Here we go. Hey, so this is a perfect segue into um, just uh, kind of my heart for this morning. Um, I just want to acknowledge this morning that uh, one of the hardest realities facing the church in America at this very moment is that everybody is exhausted. Like, everybody's tired. And there's several uh, realities that have factored into this over the past several years. Um, as a country, we've experienced political unrest. Like, I don't think we think about just the emotional toll that it takes to be, like, angry or combative or to be trying to wrestle with, you know, what Thanksgiving dinner is going to lo look like and all of these different things. We've had technological unrest. It's not just that we have division, but now, over the last two decades, we have division that, like, never stops because we're never disconnected. We're always connected to people and all these realities. We've experienced racial unrest. Right now, we're experiencing global unrest. Like, we're experiencing, like, things that have always happened but we haven't ever had to feel the weight of now because of technology we do feel the weight of it and all of this in the midst of a global pandemic that even just here as a local church two years later like we had to cancel Little Sprouts today because people are just sick and we have to be extra careful about sickness now and it's just crazy times and I'm not even getting into virtual school okay like this pandemic if it did one thing all of a sudden you know, we can do virtual school it's crazy out there and we're all tired Everybody seems worn out. Everybody's overwhelmed. A lot of us are on the defensive about it um, when we don't even realize it. This includes leaders and members alike in the church. It's an elephant in the room of most sanctuaries right now. And if you're in this one today, I'm assuming that you have felt the weight of this. And many of you have shared with me personally that you have. We have uh, recently seen the effects of this playing out on a national scale. A recent Barna survey of over 900 pastors found that in 2021, so not that long ago, 40% of the 900 surveyed admitted to seriously considering leaving ministry at some point in the last 12 months. Almost 50% of the pastors under 45 acknowledged this to be true of them. When you look at this, in light of declining participation in the church post-2020, it's easy to conclude that many members feel the same struggle. Wherever you lead, wherever you're investing in, there's just a reality to people feeling tired in the midst of this season. We all feel it, and in God's providence, I felt it a great deal this week. Um, just being transparent with you because it kind of fits. Like, this was maybe one of the hardest sermons for me to get together in my time at Rooted. And it wasn't because the text is particularly hard. It was just a hard week. It was just, man, like, things happened in the church that I wasn't really expecting. People needed to be, um, you know, tended to. And, um, you know, I had a, a really big board meeting for the nonprofit I work at. And then snow days, you know, snow day comes. And it was just one of those weeks where it was just difficult to like summon the energy needed to focus and do the work that laid in front of me. And I think many of you uh, could probably relate to that same struggle in different areas. And I was encouraged this week as I pressed in and leaned into this text because it's important for us to know as God's people that what we're feeling, this dilemma, is not a new issue facing the children of God. In fact, it's a very, very old one. The truth is that 
specific historical moments of crisis, when there is a one-time event that affects humanity in a crisis-type way, people tend to run to God and recommit to his church. Okay, An example of this in my lifetime was 9-11. You had a singular event, and people's response to that moment was they swarmed to the church, and really for a decade or so, the church grew pretty significantly in response to this crisis. However, sustained periods of trial, not just a one-time event, but seasons of trial that endure and that, that, that last tend to have the opposite effect. They tend to have more of a pruning effect amongst God's people because they tend to produce weariness and ultimately reveal apathy and struggle. In many ways, this is what the author of Hebrews describes in the opening of our text today, which this part Asher didn't read. I'm going to read it for you. I want to read for you starting in verse 7 through 11. It says this. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation. And I said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What's described here by the author of Hebrews to the church is the first generation of Israelites who ultimately rebelled against God in the wilderness. The Lord had rescued them from slavery. He had literally drowned their oppressors in a sea of his judgment. And then he called them to endure as they followed his appointed guy, Moses, who we learned about last week. They're to follow Moses to the promised land and to endure in the midst of the season that God had for them on their way to this place. Now, the wilderness journey, as we know, was not an easy journey. They went from the mountaintop of God's rescue to 40 years of trial and having to be utterly dependent upon the Lord. And for 40 years, God did not cease to provide for them, yet he granted them what they needed and not always what they wanted, and they failed to endure. Because like their mother Eve and their father Adam, they longed for something more than just God himself. And that's kept them out of the promised land, they never entered the perfect rest of the Lord. The author of Hebrews warns us with this testimony today so that we might follow a different example as those who have seen the glory of Christ revealed through the gospel. Roughly 75 years ago, just looking at a different testimony, Christians in Germany formed what became known as the Confessing Church. They opposed the German established Christian church movement, which was totally run by, sponsored by the Nazis, and was meant to boast up their propaganda um, in, the in a distorted version of Christ. From 1933 to 1945, the, the Christian church in Germany was run by the Nazi party. As Nazi power and influence increased, the confessing church was forced into hiding, and in 1935, the confessing church formed a school that was called the Preacher's Seminary. The primary teacher of the 25 students was a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a 29-year-old pastor and a university professor from Berlin. Bonhoeffer discipled these students by modeling rhythms for them that included daily prayer, meditation, worship, study, fun, and work. And in September of 1937, the seminary was closed by the Nazi police. And in November, the students were all arrested. 
That same year, Bonhoeffer published a book titled The Cost of Discipleship. And in September of 1938, he put together a compilation of lessons of what they learned during that time under Nazi oppression in the seminary. And that book was titled Life Together. And perhaps outside of scripture, to this day, these are two of the greatest books ever written on Christian community. On March of 1943, Bonhoeffer participated in an attempt to assassinate Adolf Hitler. He was arrested April 5th, and two years later, on April 9th, 1945, he was hanged by the Gestapo in the Flossenburg concentration camp at the young age of 39 years old. Bonhoeffer had written of community so beautifully because perhaps he understood the frailty of life more than most. He understood full well during those years discipling those students in the seminary that it was highly unlikely that this was going to end well for him. One of his former students who acknowledged this about him, they wrote candidly about the season under which they lived under Bonhoeffer's discipleship at the seminary, and they wrote this. Bonhoeffer wanted a genuine, natural community in the preacher's seminary, and this community was practiced in play, and walks through the richly wooded and beautiful district of Pomerania, during evenings spent in listening to someone reading, and making music and singing, and last, not least, in worship together and holy communion. He kept entreating us to live together naturally and not to make worship an exception. He rejected all false and hollow sentiment. As the church I think that we can be prone to desire hollow sentiment at the cost of genuine community. In fact, I believe that the enemy will sell us hollow sentiment all day long if we were willing to take it. All we have to do is forsake genuine community as its cost. Hollow sentiment effectively draws a crowd. It'll work every time. But genuine community calls people out of the crowd. And this is what the author presents to the church as a life lived in contrast to what the Israelites had experienced. In verse 12, it goes on to say this. As a, and remember, this is, he's making a direct contrast here in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Notice this term, take care. It means take with urgency, pay attention, put time and invest into this. We must live vigilantly, knowing the reality that our hearts and the hearts of those whom God has put in our midst are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. That is the natural bend of our heart apart from Christ. And even for those who are in Christ, we are constantly drawn to, our eyes diverted to the things that we used to worship before our hearts were redeemed in Jesus. For most, walking away from the Lord is not a momentary decision. It's a slow drip. It begins with compromise. We begin by propping the door of my heart open to believe less and less in the commands of God, to lower the holiness of God to such a place where my sins really aren't that bad and it's really not a big deal and the momentary comfort and solace I'm provided all of a sudden begins to become worth it. But then ultimately before I know it, at the same time, I am belittling and making light of the very promises of God, of the gospel itself. The enemy is very careful about this. 
He doesn't want to spook the sheep that he lures away. He's incredibly cautious and so that we won't run and be uh, uh, just immediately drawn and, and noticeable of his schemes. He's very careful. It's a slow process. At any point, as the enemy lures sheep away, you can look over your shoulder and the enemy will say, see, the church, the, the people of God, they're just right over there. You're not that far away. See, they're, they're right there. Just keep on coming. It's okay. They're just right there. You can go back anytime until one day they're not there. And on that day, you wonder if you really ever needed them to begin with. And that's when he goes in for the kill. The author of Hebrews is making the argument that this is one of the reasons that Israel fell away. They allowed their hearts to be hardened by the deceit of sin, isolated by the deceit of sin. And this must not be so of us. Like soldiers standing back to back, we must be committed to protecting each other from the lies that threaten to overtake us. Okay, like we need one another, and the author of Hebrews is making that case to God's people. This is a, a reason things like DNA groups are in place and are meant to be something to fight for because we need one another. It's not just something that, man, that'd be kind of cool every other month to talk about this together. Like, no, we need people who are regularly involved in our life who know us, know what's going on in our heart, who we can be real with about who we are, and who can call us to repentance when needed, and who can encourage us in the gospel at the same time. The author of Hebrews is saying, we need that. That's an incredibly important part of what it means to be sanctified. The good news of the gospel is that God will not allow his children to be taken from his grip. The sheep belong ultimately to a perfect shepherd. The children of God belong to a perfect father. And in his sovereignty, though, the means by which he will preserve his children is the community of Christ. It is his church. In verse 13, he get, we see a command to his church as to what that's to look like. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If you haven't been around rooted a long time, um, there might be an aspect of, 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 of kind of some of our origins you might not know about. Um, one thing that, so rooted started with a core group of just maybe like 12 people. And one thing that those 12 people almost all had in common was that we had all been a part of a church that had closed in Joplin um, years ago after the tornado that was a part of a, a casualty of, of the tornado and everything that that brought out um, in, in, the, in the local church. And, uh, you know, what happened is after a couple years, a group of us came together who had experienced that and began to wrestle with, like, man, is God calling us to plant and to take the lessons that we learned? And how would we do things different if we were to do this? And in the midst of that season, you had just like a bunch of broken people come together. Like the, are we were, you know, some every church has a start date and an end date. But when a church ends, a local church, you hope that like it's 150 and, and the ending is like you get to celebrate it just like you do somebody that lived a long life. Like every local expression of the church will end at some point, but you hope there's a long fruitful life filled with multiplication and legacy. But what we experienced wasn't like that. It was more like the loss of a young child. Like it was gone too soon, shouldn't have happened that way. And because of that, you just had this collective group of people that were dispersed and heartbroken and struggled a great deal after that. 
Everyone had been wounded because there isn't any kind of hurt like church hurt. Yet as I look back all these years later and I consider what the author of Hebrews is saying, the difference between those who now in hindsight were ultimately strengthened by that experience and those who were destroyed by it is the difference between those who sought out Christian community in the midst of struggle and those who were lured away from Christian community altogether. I've literally, I've, I've kept track of everybody, and there is a distinct difference between those whose response to hurt was, nope, I don't, I'm done with it, and those whose response to hurt was, I, I need Jesus. I don't know what this looks like. This is going to be incredibly difficult. It's going to be hard to trust again, but I know that Christ has called me to this. The difference between those two paths is an absolute difference in whether somebody is still walking as a Christian today or whether they are not. It's unquestionable. The deceitfulness of sin causes each of us to stumble, and it causes us to think we don't need one another when this happens. For some of us, it might cause us to stumble in a public way that cannot be denied. And others, we stumble internally, where only we know the damage that is being done. In either case, the author of Hebrews is saying we need one another but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. This term exhort means like to seriously encourage, okay? The word means to urge someone, whether this is spurring them onward or calling them back to the flock of God, God uses his church to move people forward toward the perfect rest that we will find when he is king over all things and all things are put back as they should be. We are called, as long as it is called today, to exhort one another, to remind one another of the gospel, to speak truth into the lives of one another, that we might be corrected and brought back, and that we might see clearly the blind spot in our own eye. This time for encouragement in such a way is today. Exhort one another as long as it is called today. Because tomorrow is not guaranteed. Bonhoeffer knew that full well. That was part of the motivation that led him forward. Martin Luther, it's often said, would not, have, would not have had the perspective he did if he did not live each day knowing that it could be his last. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. And yesterday is done. Today is the day to lift up your brother, to share the burden of your sister who you know is carrying it. Christian, I don't care how smart and capable you think you are, you were not meant to carry the burden and weight of this life by yourself. You weren't designed to do that. And the idea that you can, the idea that you can pull up your bootstraps and you can just suck it up and work harder and be tough will destroy you slowly but surely because there's an arrogance in that that is an arrogance that is taken directly in contrast to the very one who wove you together and said, no, you need this. God gave you this community here in this building. He brought you into this room today for a reason. Because this, these people, the reason we value membership is because these people who are committed to you is his plan for sanctifying you and helping get you to the finish line. This command to exhort you is a command that he has made to them to come and to fight on your behalf that we might all finish together the race that he has called us to. We see a more thorough description 
of this later in Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. But I want to share that with you. In Hebrews 10, 23 and 25, it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging. And that term encouraging is the same word we saw in 3.13. Exhort, encouraging, we see the exact same word being used here. But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us hold fast to the gospel, the truth that God so loved the world. He gave his only son to live a perfect life, to die a brutal death, so that there would no longer be condemnation for us who are his, but everlasting joy in Christ Jesus. Let us hold fast to this confession without wavering, that in the midst of difficult days, we have the gospel when it's all that we have left is when we see it most clearly for what it is. For he who promised it, he who gave us the gospel is faithful. He's perfect. We don't have to understand the fullness of the Trinity and how, what in the, how in the world that plays out because the one who has promised us is faithful and in the gospel we see his faithfulness and display. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. We are meant to motivate each other by reminding one another of the truth we're prone to forget, which is the gospel. The gospel is not just a door that we walk through into heaven's gates. It's more like the hub of a wheel. Everything is connected to the gospel. The gospel is our motivation on all days, and we are the vessels through which we are to be reminded of the gospel again and again and again as we stir one another up to love and good works. And one of the ways we do this is by not neglecting to meet together. This is why you're never gonna get me on board with virtual church, man. I shut that camera down as soon as the, the band was lifted because we're not, that's not meeting together. And there's, I, I, I see a blog post probably every day about the future of virtual church and man, I'll be done. I'll be selling cars by the, when we get to, if, they, if we get to that point, like I'm done. Because no, we're to come together. There's something about being together as family, coming together, building one another up, and lifting one another up in the truth of the gospel that is powerful and reflects Christ's own model of discipleship, as is, as is the habit of some. We don't want to be the sum in the midst of that. Sometimes, this is just really hard to do. It's really hard to be a part of the church. There are seasons where we're lifting my head up, preparing to... Uh, there are just times where I, I don't want to go be a part of that thing that's happening. I'd really like to sleep in. The lake is looking pretty perfect. It's, man, it, it would just take a little bit of extra time to go and be with those people. And I'm just going to tell you, man, like, I want to I provide, like, there's grace for you. There's times where that's legit for all of us. But it's not every time. It's not most times. It's not half the time. We're missing out on something. The enemy would have nothing more but than to convince you that you're good flying solo. But I hear it all the time when people share in community that I really didn't want to come if I'm honest, but man, I'm glad I did. That's because you worked past that lie and you experienced something divine. You experienced what you have been invited into. Let us not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some, but as opposed to that, encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
The author of Hebrews is making the case that the closer we get to the end, the more and more important this is going to become. Because the church is going to experience seasons of pruning. Things are going to get harder before they get better. And it's going to become all the more important that we not neglect the gift of community and the people of God and the encouragement of the gospel that we have been granted. I promise you, friend, Jesus is worth enduring for. And if by his power you believe this to be true, it will cause you to live a different kind of life. Not an easy life, but a hope-filled life. A life preparing you for an eternal weight of glory beyond what you can comprehend. And the rest of our passage today, verses 14 through 19, let's look at these final scriptures. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. When Hebrews was written, the church found itself in much the same position as the first generation that left Israel. Like the Israelites, all had agreed to be in covenant with the Lord. And also like the Israelites, not all of those who committed to this covenant really believed. And that was being exposed. Um, and it was being exposed because as much as, like, the, those in the wilderness, like, they stopped following a man, like, who was not a perfect man. But when he, the author of Hebrews is making the, the statement that, like, no, you've been given the better Moses. You don't even have the excuse of pointing to the failure of a man because you've been given Jesus as your high priest. And yet there are still some who had made a promise to Jesus in the church and who it was being exposed that they didn't really belong to him. And the Israelites were called to endure, but the reality is that few did. In fact, only Caleb and Joshua from the first generation were allowed into the promised land. The author of Hebrews is warning the church to not make the same mistake as those who came before us. In the midst of trial, we must endure through the gospel. In the midst of weariness, we must seek a strength greater than our own in Christ. His word must be our sustenance and his rest is our ultimate reward. It is the prize for which we strive. And we must help one another to have that mentality, to have our eyes pointed to the finish line, which is Jesus himself. In verse 18, we're told that God barred the disobedient from the promised land. And verse 19 tells us the first generation did not enter the promised land because of disobedience. This tells us that disobedience and unbelief are the same thing. They're the same struggle. We all struggle. We all fight our sin, our apathy. But if a person professes to believe in Jesus, but lives a life of continual disobedience to him, that person is in danger and may not be a Christian. We must call that brother or sister back, exhorting them in the gospel so that if they belong to Christ, they will be strengthened and renewed for his glory and their good. That is our job. That is our call. All of us share 
than that. So do not hesitate. Listen to the Spirit. Who is the one whom he would have you to exhort today? Who is the one that you know needs to be encouraged? Respond, Christian. As we close, I just want to encourage you. We have to endure in this battle that we might finish the race set before us. This earth has nothing to provide us that is worth sacrificing that. It has nothing to offer that is gr- than it, what is greater than the reward of just finishing well. And as your pastor, I'm specifically praying for three specific ways that you might be strengthened um, in this season. These are the th- th- three priorities that are on my mind and my heart for you right now. And we're going to be talking about some of these as they're coming up in Hebrews over the coming weeks. Number one, I'm praying that you would find rest in the presence of the Lord. Um, I'm praying that you would come to a place of just making it a normal rhythm of your life to disconnect from all of the noise of the world and just to be with the Father. We're going to talk about this more next week. We're going to talk about Hebrews is going to bring forth Sabbath and some themes, and we're going to talk about that a lot next week, and I'm looking forward to that. But in this moment, like, take the spiritual discipline seriously. Pray. Be in your word. We've, a stat, we cre- we've made DNA groups the way it is because it requires not just coming to a Bible study and like getting to hear from somebody, but I want you to like be with God himself in his word preparing you for that. Before you ever come to be with other people, I want you to be able to sit with the Lord in his word and hear what he has to say. Like Find rest in him and allow him to speak to you through his word. Rest in his presence. Number two, I want you to find safety in Christian community. Like, I want you to have the roses and the lilies of the Christian life, which is Christian community. And that's why we separated family groups and said, hey, we we know it's hard to get a study in this context. We know it's hard to include our kids in community and also get through a Bible study. And when we tried to do that, everybody just felt terrible because we didn't make it anywhere. And so just Come and enjoy Christian community and invest in Christian community. And if you don't feel connected, step out of your comfort zone and connect yourself and get with that person. Man, what would it look like? Could we have coffee this week? Could we have lunch? Could I get to know you better? Take that step, press in, and enjoy the roses and the lilies of the Christian life, which is just being together as God's people and celebrating what he's doing in our lives. And number three, I want you as a pastor to be equipped for the work of ministry. Right now, that's a big point of the gathering. Um, That's also a a point of what our DNA groups are meant to be, that we're going to come together and we're going to help build one another up. And I'll confess, this is an area where we want to continue to invest in and figure out how we can continue to do better. I want you to commit to these things. Don't forsake the opportunities God has given you to strengthen one another through his bride. Don't make little of that. Don't make that the first thing that gets bumped off the calendar when, you know, whatever happens. That's going to happen sometimes. And I don't want to be legalistic. Like, there's grace in the midst of that. But fight for these things. Fight for these things even when you don't want them because maybe that's when you need them the most and the Spirit will make known to you whether or not that's true. But I would argue that often it is. Additionally, I'd ask to pray for wisdom as we try to define as a church plant how to continue to refine these rhythms, especially right now as the semester's winding down and we're saying, 
Is what we're doing working? Are these rhythms of discipleship working? Or is there ways that we can do better? Like pray for wisdom, share what the Spirit is doing in you. I've appreciated some of you uh, doing that even here recently. All in all, my challenge to you is don't quit. Don't quit. Don't stop enduring. I'm just, uh, you know, a lot of you are older brothers and sisters to me, and you might not know this, but I, I look up to you. I look up to you because you're still going, because I have just very, few, sometimes I feel like I have very few examples of those who I've had close to me that just stayed the way all the way through, that just stayed faithful to Jesus to the very end. And so I just want to challenge you today, don't quit. I want to leave you with a quote from C.S. Lewis uh, from the Screw Tape Letters this morning. In this quote, he shares the perspective of the enemy. This quote is written as Satan giving advice to a young demon on how to best lure you away from Jesus, who he calls the enemy. I want to share this with you for your consideration this morning. The enemy has guarded him from you through the first wave of temptations. But if only he can be kept alive, you have time itself as your ally. The long, dull, monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity or middle-aged adversity are excellent campaigning weather. You see, it is so hard for these creatures to persevere. The routine of adversity, the gradual decay of youthful loves and youthful hopes, the quiet despair, hardly felt as pain, of ever overcoming the chronic temptations with which we have again and again defeated them. The drabness which we create in their lives or inarticulate resentment with which we teach them to respond to it. All this provides admirable opportunities of wearing out a soul by attrition. If, on the other hand, the middle years form prosperous, our position is even stronger. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. That is why we must often wish long life to our patients. Seventy years is not a day too much for the difficult task of unraveling their souls from heaven and building up a firm attachment to the earth. Lord, I uh, acknowledge before you this morning that as I, I first read this quote, um, it struck me as just feeling all too real. There is no question, Lord, uh, that the great uh, enemy of enthusiasm is time. It is hard to persevere. This world is, is broken. Like, Lord, we, we know this full well. We felt this this week. Lord, we, we see men gunned down in our own city just because of wickedness. What are we supposed to do with that? How do, how do, we, how do we deal with the reality that uh, folks we, we know and loved we've seen people die because of something in the air that we can't even identify how do we, we struggle often lord as to how to deal with that the enemy is prone to use our weariness to use the monotony of this world to wind us down 
and to let that slow drip take place as we release our grip on you slowly and cling to other things. Lord, I'm asking in the name of Jesus that that would not be so of these people. Lord, that you would give us power through the Holy Spirit, through the sanctifying work of the gospel repeated to endure. We will not endure perfectly. As screw tape letters noted, Lord, we will struggle, we will lose battles the whole way. But Lord, would we for not a moment lose sight of the ultimate, the war that you won on the cross. You have granted us righteousness that cannot be taken away. Lord, would you prove that righteousness in us through a life lived, enduring faithfully for your glory? Lord, I'd ask you this morning that you might drown out all of the voices, all of the sounds that distract us from the Holy Spirit speaking. Would we hear the prompts of the Spirit to exhort one another in love? Would we be committed? Would we take, Lord, would we take the endurance of our brother and our sister personally? Would we love one another as we love ourselves? God, only, only you can do this. There's no program that will make that be so. Only you can do that kind of work in the hearts of your people. And so I'm, I'm asking you, I'm pleading with you in the name of Jesus to give us love for one another that rivals the very love we have for ourselves and even exceeds it. Lord, would we take uh, the, the wounds and the weight of a brother, of a sister as our own? Would you do this work in us in your time and in your way? And would we never grow weary of just continuing to follow you and waiting on you in the midst of all seasons, both those of celebration and those of tears. I ask this in Jesus' good and perfect name. Amen.